starting a new conversation. I'm kicking it off. It's called Every Tongue, Tribe, and Nation. And if it were to have a subtitle, this is probably what it would be. Embracing God's gift of a multicultural and multi-ethnic humanity. Embracing God's gift of a multicultural and multi-ethnic humanity. And if you've been around Mill City for a while, we have this conversation at least once a year, but we also see this as an ongoing conversation that we're having all the time. So I actually want to start off with a story. Michael just mentioned this, but it was 11 years ago this like week where there was some of us, about 30 of us maybe, who were meeting in someone's basement. I don't remember whose basement it was. And this is this little church that maybe just got the name Mill City Church, which took a long time to figure out. And we didn't have a worship place yet. We weren't going to worship in a space yet for a while. We'd, we were, Sheridan was a twinkle in our eye. And we didn't have a website yet. But we're sitting in this room in this basement and we're saying, what is the mission that God has for this church? And we knew it was to love our community in the name of Jesus. And so hopefully if you've been around Mill City, you've heard us say our mission is to love our community in the name of Jesus. And we've said that every Sunday for 11 years. And there was a a concept where we said, okay, that's the mission, but what are some of the things that we feel are really necessary for us to be able to live this mission out here in Northeast Minneapolis and by the communities represented by all the people who were a part of this little team? And so one of the things that we knew and we agreed on as a group is that embracing God's gift of multi-ethnic, multicultural humanity as a, as a gift that God has given us, that that was going to be critical to living this mission out. But I will tell you that we knew at that moment that it was going to be a difficult thing to do for a lot of reasons. One, that many people in the room came from a simil- similar cultural background. So that was one thing. And also, because we're people who realize how hard it is to engage with people who are different than us. Right? It's difficult. It pushes us out of our comfort zone. That's why they call it a comfort zone. It's comfortable in the zone. When you're out the zone, not as comfortable. So we knew that, among other reasons, it would be difficult. And so we know, I know, that conversations that start with titles like this are things that bring up anxiety in a lot of us, and for a lot of different reasons, depending on our backgrounds, and we'll talk about some of that. But I want you to hear this from my heart as one of your pastors. This is, without a doubt to me, something that God has given to us as a gift. If we want to pursue God's heart for embracing people of difference, we're not going to do that because it's popular. We're not going to do that because it's political. We're not going to do that out of duty or out of some sort of sense of of feeling like it's something we are obligated to do or it's a burden. We're going to pursue engaging with people who are different than us because it's a gift that God has given us. That's something that we truly believe. But we also know that it can cause deep pain, and it has caused deep pain. And so let me just say something that many of you have probably heard me say before, and it's this. Diversity of culture and ethnicity is a gift from God. But racism is a curse. It's a curse, and I'm not using that word lightly. The most profound gifts from God, have you ever noticed this? The most profound gifts from God are the ones that the enemy likes to put the deepest curses upon. Have you noticed in our lives and other aspects of our lives? And I think it's pretty easy just to see how devastating this curse has been. It's easy to see how devastating it's been to everybody, I think, especially people of color, especially people who are a minority in a majority space where there's a very strong culture to the majority. Even this week, we're looking at the national local news cycle and you see how deep this curse has affected so many people. It's so painful. But I truly believe, despite all of that, that it's a gift. And I don't just believe that because of something that I woke up thinking in my life, but because of my experience and also because of God's word, which is what we're going to talk about today. And so right now, I think we need to say, okay, look, this is a gift. Now more than ever before, here in this 
soon-to-be-frozen tundra, there's people from more cultures than there ever has been in the history of the frozen tundra of Minnesota. And so the opportunity to embrace this gift is in front of us in a, in a more opportunistic way than it ever has been. And so I want to invite you all to say, listen, this is who we are as people who are going to choose to be learners in this area, not just for the next couple of weeks as we talk about this, but as our lifestyle. That we are people who are choosing cultural humility, cultural competence as a lifestyle because it's how we're able, even when it's hard, to embrace a gift that God's given us. So that's my invitation to you, that you would just say, listen, even though this is hard, that I want to believe that it's worth it. And I want to believe that we can step into that. And I know that that is a cost for some of you, especially people of color, to say I want to step into that gift. But I want to invite us to do that and to try to do everything we can to be a place of brave space for each other where we can do that. And wherever we are, let's take that next step in that learning. So that's what we're going to talk about for these next few weeks. I want to pray together and then we'll jump into just the initial kind of overview topic of uh, starting this topic off today. All right? So let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you to the space. Thank you for inhabiting our worship. Holy Spirit, you say that you are, you are inside with our worship, and we are so grateful for that. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would remain here in this school, that it would make a difference this week as the kids come back to school at Sheridan, as the faculty and staff. God, that you would bless them in the name of Jesus, that you would be making wrong things right here at Sheridan School in the name of Jesus. And we ask, God, that you'd speak to each one of us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, back to my cheesy um, community time question. Anybody willing to shout out a TV show you've watched all the episodes of? Seinfeld. Anyone else with the Seinfeld? All right, who else? What else? Brady Bunch. They're doing like an HGTV thing about that right now. Did you see that? Gilligan's Island. Anyone else? X-Files? Gilligan's, Gilligan's Island, X-Files, good. Lost. Lost. Will and Grace, what do you got? The West Wing, yes. How many times have you watched all the episodes, brother? That's my actual brother. I think you've watched all the episodes. I think you've watched the, like, yeah, five or six times, somewhere in between there, yeah, every episode that many times. I don't typically watch anything more than once. I, I like to just watch an episode once. But I have seen at least once, maybe twice, all the episode of the show Friends. Anybody with me on Friends? Okay, talk about a cultural phenomenon, right? Okay, all these TV shows, talk about a cultural phenomenon, right? The ways in which they express uh, the culture here in North America, all the TV shows that you guys mentioned. And so when I think about the show Friends, I think about how it, it made a lot of us here in like kind of the mainstream North American culture feel like we could see ourselves in the story, right? Some of us, it's these six friends, they're growing up in New York City, uh, going from like their 20s to their, to their 30s is kind of what's going on. So they're kind of coming into adulthood in this way. And so everybody watching this is like, I want to be a cool person that hangs out in New York City and becomes an adult. Like that, that makes you want to like join into the story. At least people who resonate with that and like see themselves in that story. And so some of you, maybe you know, uh, Netflix is not going to have friends after 2020. I'm sorry that I was the person to tell you that. Did you hear that gasp? I'm sorry. It's going to be somewhere else, but it won't be on Netflix. And so maybe others of you have started to rewatch some of the Friends episodes, and that's what I've been doing. And I felt really drawn this last week to do something really weird. I felt it was weird, and it was to go and watch the last episode of Friends. Okay? I was like, oh, i got to watch the last episode of Friends. And when you go and watch the last episode of a TV show, if they've done a good job, and I think they did, they're like masterfully weaving the whole storyline of 10 years of show into this final episode. It's kind of this masterful way of bringing together all that storytelling. 
And if you hadn't watched the other episodes, you wouldn't understand the ending very well, would you? Right? Like, you wouldn't understand why it's such an interesting thing that Joey buys a little duck and a little chick to give to Monica and Chandler as their housewarming gift. See, if you didn't watch the episodes, you wouldn't know. And if you hadn't watched the other episodes, you wouldn't know why it's such a big deal that Ross and Rachel end up together. And you wouldn't understand why it's the last thing that Ross should say after they pr- profess their, lo- their commitment to each other forever. It's the last thing that Ross should say unless we're on a break. He should not have said that, right? See, now I know who's watched the other episodes because you would get that that was funny or you'd get that that's interesting because you had understood all the story leading up till then. So here's what I'm telling you all this for. The end of the story is most meaningful when you've experienced the fullness of the story leading up to it. The end of the story is most meaningful when you've experienced the fullness of the story leading up to that climactic ending, right? That grand ending grand finale of a story. So we're not characters and friends. They're not real people. They're not my actual friends. I'm just saying that to remind myself. But we are characters in a story, and probably of no surprise to you, uh, this story that we sometimes call God's big story, the meta-narrative, or with our kids we call it the big God story, I think is one of the most profound, deep stories that has ever been told. And here we are as characters, supporting characters of this great story. It's God's story, so God's the main character. And I think when we think about this big story and we hear the phrase, every tongue, tribe, and nation, maybe you've heard that before. Maybe it's been something you heard about in talking about world missions or something, or maybe in a song, or maybe it's brand new to you. But something really important for you to understand today is that this phrase is at the end of the story. This phrase, every tongue, tribe, and nation, is at the end of the story. I'm going to read it for you in a minute. Here's what I want you to pay attention to today. If it's true that the end of the story is most meaningful when you've experienced the fullness of the story leading up to it, then what does it say to us when the end of the story, the last episode, the last act, includes something so profound as what I'm about to read? And so this is in Revelation 7 if you have a Bible, but I'm actually going to invite you to to just close your eyes and imagine it if you want to. We'll have it up on the screen if you want to. But Revelation 7, it's a part of this book of Revelation. It's a vision given to one of Jesus' followers after Jesus has left the earth physically. And he, Jesus' follower John, is getting this vision of the end of the story. And so we're going to read just a tiny part of the end of the story, but it's in Revelation 7. And here we're seeing that in the midst of this story, God has brought full healing to the world. God has brought what's called the new heavens, the new earth, One of my favorite ways to talk about it is the new creation, right? The story starts with creation, and here we have a new creation. God's making all things new. Important that God's not making all new things. God's renewing and restoring and making all things new. And so as you listen to this part of the description, I just want you to imagine, if you can, what it would be like to see this, to be a witness of this, to have a picture in your mind the way that John is picturing this as he gets this picture. So close your eyes if you're willing. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. It's powerful for me to to picture that scene. Sometimes it's almost like impossible for me because I realize that it's beyond my comprehension. 
But this picture right here in the end of the story is central to the grand finale of the story. And I think that's exactly why we should talk about what it means for us as Jesus followers who are a part of the story. The grand finale should give us some thoughts about what is happening in the story today. So actually today, what I want to offer to you is a framework that theologian N.T. Wright talks about. Some of you might have heard of this before, but he calls it the five-act story of God. The five-act story of God. It's relatively simple, to the point where I want everybody in this room to be able to go and tell somebody later this afternoon what the five acts would be, okay? So sit up, brains on. I want you to be able to go and tell everybody exactly what I'm saying these five acts are, okay? Not, not too hard. Just like watching the, the, a TV show and getting to the, the last act of a play, the last end of the story, we see how it defines the story leading up to that moment. And I think this is exactly what N.T. Wright, this theologian, is talking about. So we'll put these, these five acts up on the screen. All right, here's what they are. Act one, creation, which we see in the Bible, mostly in Gen- Genesis 1 and 2. And then we see act two is called the fall. According to N.T. Wright, he talks about that. It's probably Genesis 3 through 12. You could actually make a case that Genesis 8 is where the fall chapter act ends, and then we move into Act 3, Israel. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. And that story is the rest of the Old Testament. From the first few chapters of Genesis to the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's people, the people of Israel, the rest of the Old Testament. And then we have Act 4, Jesus. This is seen in the Bible in the four Gospels. We see so clearly Jesus' life, death, resurrection in that part of the story. And then finally, we see Act 5, which N.T. Wright calls the church. Some people call it uh, the, the ongoing story of restoration. There's different ways to talk about it. But I think it's helpful for us today to call it the church. And it goes from the book of Acts all the way to the book of Revelation, what we're talking about today. So I want to just give you a little brief explanation of each of those because I really think you'd be able to turn around and explain what we're talking about. And what I want to do is actually take this thread, imagine a piece of thread, and it's threading this idea, this, this concept, this deep reality that God invites us into of what it means that humanity was created with this vast array of cultures and vast array of ethnicities. Imagine this thread throughout the whole story of God because I think we see it. Starting right away in creation, what I think we see happen is that, that God notices right away that God's image, the image of God that's placed on humanity, can't even exist in only one human. You see the creation of Eve. That God, God's image bearing needs to happen in a multiplicity of humans. The humans are invited to intentionally and intimately walk with God, which is a huge deal if you think about it. The humans are given authority over creatures and creation. The humans are invited to have uh, authority over the very earth itself. So notice this. God's inviting them into a really deep relationship but it's also giving them kind of an important responsibility, right? God, the God of the universe is inviting them into deep relationship and deep important re- responsibility. But guess what? By the time we get to chapter 3, that's not enough for the humans. And the humans are the ones who welcome in what we call the fall. It invites sin or brokenness might be another word we could use. It invites that brokenness into the lives of the humans, but also into the life of the whole world and the whole ecosystem. And so we see that now all the things God created good is is now permeated with brokenness. And I think if we have our eyes open on any given day, we see signs of that brokenness, don't we? Inside our own lives, in the lives of the people around us, in our earth, in the world, we see how this brokenness has permeated everything in some way. This brokenness is at the center of our ability to love other people the way that we want to. The brokenness is at the center of our ability to be able to, to engage in the things that we know we want to do. 
I would say this brokenness is at the center of every inch of the systemic injustice that we see or don't see in our world. This brokenness is at the center of that. It's at the center of our uh, implicit and explicit bias towards people who are different than us. It all comes back to Genesis 3. And we're living in that in certain ways because we haven't seen the end of the story come to full reality. But then we move to Act 3, Israel. Very brief explanation of Israel. If someone were to ask you, why were these people, these people of Israel? Well, God decides to choose a group of people to begin his restoration project right away. He's like, we're barely into the Bible and God's already restoring things. That's who God is. And God says, okay, I'm going to take this one group of people, but this group of people that I'm going to choose is going to be for the sake of everyone. It's super clear that this is what God's inviting this small, at this, at this time, it's a small group of people, a small nation to move into a spot where they're going to be a blessing to all the nations. God tells Israel this so many times. You see it in Genesis 12, again in Genesis 18, again in Genesis 22. You are to be a blessing to all nations. But of course, that brokenness thing is still in there. And because of that, this this causes these people to forget that this is their purpose, that they are, yes, one nation for all other nations. That's what God was hoping to be able to do. Notice this theme where God is saying, okay, I'm going to be seemingly exclusive, but it's always for the purpose of greater invitation, for greater inclusivity. I'm going to start small so we can go to the whole world. And this was God's invitation for these people. Act four. See, we're going real fast. Act four, we get to Jesus. This is some part of the story that a lot of people would say they feel the most familiar with, if you're familiar with the story. There, people would often call this like the crescendo of the story or the climactic moment of the story. Jesus, God becoming a human, life, death, resurrection, that this is this climactic moment. But you see this guy, Jesus, is from the same ethnic family as the people of Israel. But here's something you might not notice if you were to just read through the story really quickly. The people of that time, the people of Israel, they would have looked at Jesus' lineage, they would have looked at his family tree and been like, you know, this guy doesn't quite fit what we're looking for if God is going to be elevating Israel to being the most important. But that wasn't what God was doing, is it? And so God becomes a human with a family that's got a family history that's not exactly the way, more than not exactly the way that people would want the, the Savior of the world to come. And this is who Jesus is. And Jesus says, there is a new covenant, a new promise in my blood that now says everyone can be a part of this family. The new covenant is not just with one group of people, not one nation, but with the whole world, anyone who wants to be a part of my family. That's why when we say the phrase in Christ, we're saying we're choosing to be in the family of Jesus. That's a choice that people can make. And notice this again. Jesus invites just a few disciples, right? Just a few people. Probably we talk about the 12 and then there was this group of women that were there too. So like 20 people, that by the time he's leaving the earth, there's maybe 500 of them, it says. That's not that many people. Jesus, again, is starting with what seems exclusive for the sake of the greatest inclusivity, the greatest invitation of all. That's what Jesus is stepping towards. And so then we see Act 5, the church. Jesus physically leaves the earth but says, hey, I'm going to physically leave, but I'm going to send to you the count- a counselor or the Holy Spirit to come to be with you. Maybe if you were here uh, maybe a month or two ago, I t- did a sermon on the church, this kind of fifth act, and I was talking about what it means, and we talked about the story of Pentecost. Just a little while after Jesus left physically, the Holy Spirit absolutely does come and lead the people. Don't you see that in the story? 
The Holy Spirit comes just in a reminder and starts to lead them in this powerful way. They're in the city of Jerusalem and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation at that time that was in that area, a huge group, very diverse, is coming to Jerusalem. And the the people, the Jesus followers at that time were told to wait for the Holy Spirit and then all of a sudden they are able in that moment to supernaturally speak in the language of all the people who are there. This is incredible. Talk about a counselor or a guide, to literally give you the language to speak to other people. And I see this story as the tipping point of this blessing to the whole world reality that we see in the story. Talk about blessing to the whole world when so many people are able to come become followers of Jesus because they hear in their heart language how Jesus is, the, is inviting all tongues, tribes, and nations to be a part of the family of God. And it's not about any sort of boundaries anymore. I see this as a tipping, tipping point. And so a few weeks ago when I was talking about the church, I said, you know, in the New Testament, the word church that we read is actually literally translated the gathered ones or gathered people. But by the time we get through the rest of the book, uh, the whole New Testament, it's pretty clear that what they mean by the church is the people who follow Jesus gathering together and then being scattered to love the world in the name of their leader, Jesus. Okay? So, hey, We're talking about a story, characters in the story. Boom, doesn't that sound like where we're at in the story? Here we are, a group of people gathered together to be sent out and scattered to love people in the world in the name of Jesus. That's why our mission statement's just really not that original because here we see it in the story all the way back in the beginning of Act 5. But this is kind of a weird moment in the story, okay? Because let's imagine that this was... uh, a, a story with these five acts, like N.T. Wright is including us, encouraging us to think about. We've seen Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4. We just start Act 5, and then guess what? There's no script. The script is gone. But we know the end of the story, but from this part of Act 5 till then, we don't have a script. That's kind of awkward, right? If you were actors, that'd be kind of awkward. It's kind of like watching the, the last episode of Friends, but not having season 8, 9, and 10. You'd be very confused because you wouldn't have that context. So remember this, God is the main character, we're the supporting characters, and now here we are in Act 5, I like to call it the messy middle of Act 5, and we don't have a script, which is what what makes it so messy. And then we have the question that I think any actors would ask, which is, so what do we do now? (laughs) We don't have a script, what do we do now? And this is the exact question that N.T. Wright is posing. And he, he says, think about it like it's a Shakespearean play. And the actors in the Shakespearean play, they have act one, two, three, and four, and then they get to act five, and they have no script. What would they do? They would have to improvise, wouldn't they? And so N.T. Wright calls this an invitation to improvise. And so this is a, let me put this quote up from N.T. Wright, and then I'll explain it. So for those of you who like to read, like, what this British dude has to say, here it is, okay? So this is what he says. We must act in the appropriate manner for this moment in the story. This will be in direct continuity with the previous acts, right? One, two, three, four. So we're not free to jump suddenly into some other narrative or a different play altogether. But such continuity also implies discontinuity, a moment where genuinely new things can happen, can and do happen. We must be ferociously, I love it, ferociously, I would never say ferociously. We must be ferociously loyal to what's gone before and cheerfully open to what must come next. All the actors are free to improvise their own fresh scenes, but no actor is free to improvise scenes from another play or one with a different ending. So look at that for a minute. Does that, some of you that you're like, I get that right away. If you didn't, let's break it down, five things, okay? 
Five rules of improv is kind of what he's breaking down here. So put those five things up there for me. So basically he's saying, listen, if you got to the part of the story and you have to improvise, what would you do? Well, you have to know that the history of the story got So we really need to understand where the story came from. Then you have to remember you can't switch stories. You can't just jump into another story. That would be totally bizarre for an actor to do. Then three, you can't break character. An actor needs to stay in character. It would be super weird, right, if they all of a sudden just broke their character. That would make everybody know they don't have a script, right? And then number four, the story continues in innovative and new ways. So it's not that they just repeat the story over and over that they have in the past, but they say, okay, now where do we go from here? But here's the most important part here then. The story is always pointing toward or anticipating the conclusion. If the actors know the conclusion, then the story is always pointing towards or anticipating the conclusion. And so here's what's so important. Has anybody been to improv show before? Who's into improv? Okay. If you go and see improv, it can seem kind of like people are just doing whatever they want, right? But they're definitely not. They're following these rules. So for example, if you haven't been, imagine that there's a group of actors and they're all standing together and they're, uh, the scene is they're in Minnesota and it just went from 80 degrees to 50 degrees in 24 hours, all right? And they're like, ooh, man, it's really cold. Yeah, how about you? Oh, yeah, it was really cold. I had to find my boots. I didn't know where they were. And they're having this improvisation con- conversation. If another actor entered the scene and said, I love living in California, it's so great here, 75 degrees and sunny all the time, that would be so awkward because they just took the story in a completely different way. They broke the narrative. They took the actors into a totally different space. That would be breaking a rule of improv. And so the invitation here, N.T. Wright calls this faithful improvisation, faithful improv. How we are people who faithfully improvise in this part of the story, in the middle of the story that we find ourselves. And so here we are with these guidelines to say, okay, if we know the end of the story is about this beautiful display of every tongue, tribe, and nation, this beautiful display of multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual people coming together, singing in one voice but multiple languages, that's why our brains explode when we think about the picture, if that's where the story's going, then how do we follow this? How are we people who say, okay, we have to follow where the story's going, where it's come from? The story of God has a, what we sometimes call a redemptive trajectory, where God, time after time, is saying, I know that you're dividing over these things, but throughout the story, I'm bringing people together in unity without taking away the beauty of the the ethnicity and the language and the culture, because together these things are are majestic to God. And so this redemptive trajectory is where the stories come from, so we got to jump onto that redemptive trajectory and keep moving towards redemption. We see then in the story that the actors must not break character. So when we look at the, the characters in the story, we see in the, in the big God story, we see people who struggle with difference all the time, don't we? We see people who are wrestling through that. We see people who are hitting walls when it comes to trying to, to, to break through and be people who have trusting relationships with people who are different. That's a part of, that's a thread throughout the whole story. But God's inviting those characters time and time again to say, don't give up. My redemptive trajectory is inviting you to glorify me through coming together in this multi-ethnic, multicultural way. Time and time again, we see this in the story. The actors have to recognize that they are not the center of the story, but God is. God is the main character, and we're the supporting character, so follow the lead of the main character. How do we do that? Don't break character. I love that as we get to Act 4 and 5, Jesus makes it so clear 
that the story is going to continue beyond his physical presence, but he says some things that are so clear about the heart of God to see people come together in these ways. One example, when Jesus says, love God and love neighbor as yourself, what does he do? He tells a story. We call it the Good Samaritan. Why do we call it that? Because the story is about a person who's a Samaritan. And here's Jesus taking uh, ethnic strife and conflict and making that center of the story between Samaritans and Jews. Jesus is saying, this is at the center of what it looks like to be characters in my story who are joining in to the author's story and saying, this story looks different than the stories that are being told around you. The story continues in innovative and new ways. It doesn't get stuck waiting for a conclusion. I think that brings up a question for us. What are some ways we can innovate to move towards this amazing conclusion that we see? How can we practice this picture that we see in Revelation 7? And then we see the stories always pointing towards and anticipating the conclusion. The story is always pointing towards and anticipating the conclusion. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Let me read this part one more time from Revelation 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And I think it might be tempting for some of us to go, okay, so I guess it sounds like I need to find some people to sing with in different languages at the same time. No, (laughs) that would be a pretty big reduction of what this beautiful picture means. And we're going to talk about that throughout these next few weeks. But this is a great question for us. We'll put it on the screen. How are we pointing towards and anticipating the conclusion of the story? This beautiful symbol of the conclusion of the story. One humanity, many cultures. One voice, many languages. I think this question guides our faithful improvisation as we let God's spirit lead us to having a, a taste of the new creation. If you want a taste of the new creation, head down to Midtown Global Market in South Minneapolis, all right, where you can taste the nations. If you want uh, to be able to hear the sounds of the new creation, then if you can find an opportunity, it's relatively rare to worship in a multi-ethnic space, a truly multi-ethnic space. It's happened a few times in my life then that will make you feel like you hear the sounds of the new creation. And you, I know for me, when I hear people pray in their heart language, it brings me to tears because I feel like God is near. And if you want to be able to see a picture of the new creation, a little glimpse right here as we look forward to the end of the story, man, those relationships of difference as we press in and get the honor of hearing each other's stories, to see the stories that people have come from, to be willing to sit in the joy and the pain of those stories, to be people who see with our eyes the art and the history of those cultures, that is a little taste of the future new creation. And that's our invitation to point towards that, to to be people who embrace this gift of a multicultural, multi-ethnic reality as we move towards the grand finale. (laughs) Because we remember the end of the story is most meaningful when you've experienced the fullness of the story leading up to it. And someday when we get to that part of the story, the end of Act 5, guess what we're going to find out? As we stand there with Jesus and all these people, every tongue, tribe, and nation, it's actually Act 1 because it's the beginning of a new story. That's our invitation today. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we desperately need you to guide us in this area of our lives. Forgive us when we are not humble. 
forgive us when we think we can do this kind of work on our own. Forgive us when we think we can embrace this gift without you when we know the hold that brokenness has on it. God, we pray that you would break the chains in the name of Jesus. God, that you would break the curses in the name of Jesus, that you would set us free, and Holy Spirit, that you would lead us and guide us. We're here to worship you together today. May you be glorified, honored, and praised just as we see those who sing and honor you are praising your name at the end of the story. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.